positive space and safer space, especially for um, 2S LGBTQAI plus um, folks and how and folks that they serve uh, in the community. Um, so it's really exciting, actually, to be thinking about how um, people learn versus um, uh, delivering the content. I'm, I'm sitting back and really getting a chance to think about uh, the content before somebody else delivers it. Is there a particular reason why you felt that um, you needed to make the content? Like, what what is the reason? Like, why? What motivates you to actually create that content? Um, partly it's because it's my job, so it's <laughs> how I make money, how I, um, you know, make a living. Um, partly because I was asked, you know, um, and so I got to actually consider whether to do it. And partly um, because it actually is really exciting for me. Um, there is actually a lot of content out there around um, making spaces, uh, you know, queer, trans, positive, making spaces uh, safer for marginalized communities in different ways. Um, and I like to think about what might be missing in what's already out there. And so it's a, it's a fun thing to think about. And what's currently, what have you seen that is missing so far? Um, so in the existing material, in the different ways, you know, uh, I've, I've sat through trainings, I've done like web, uh, online, you know, courses and, uh, workshops and things like that as, as a learner, um, and also have, um, looked at different curricula and, um, um, done, you know, learning through books and other kinds of reading. I think what is really strong in, in abundance is, um, like what I think of as explicit knowledge, right? So there is an abundant, uh, abundance of, um, you know, like terminology concepts, uh, learning everything from, what the the letters all stand for and what does it mean and how do you define things to concepts like allyship and concepts like uh, microaggressions you know um what's missing for me is um how to address why this kind of content can sometimes be difficult to actually learn so if you don't have that lived experience um, of being um, marginalized uh, in those ways because of a sexual identity, because of a gender identity, um, 
it can be really hard to really get it, you know, and, and it's fine and all that people can memorize, um, and learn what words mean and what concepts mean. What I really am interested in is the, the moment when somebody, um, gets it on a more personal level, when they get it in an emotional way, when they get it in an experiential way, when it starts to like, um, create an emotional response versus, um, and have it be an intellectual exercise. So I feel like that's, that's missing. Not my, not many, um, not much of the material that's available right now, like makes me laugh or cry. That makes me like really imprints me with like a story. Um, and I feel like those things are really important for people to retain, um, and internalize and integrate what they learn, um, and make a, make something that's sustainable, um, in terms of change, in terms of impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have personally seen that firsthand just through my experience with education. Um, the information I had access to in high school, it very mm-hmm. much was a case of here's a, sheet with a bunch of definitions and mm-hmm. memorize this for the test because you're going to have to define or mix and match kind of questions. There yeah. wasn't really um, an emotional or personal connection. So in high school, I felt like, oh, yeah, I know what all the letters mean. I know what uh, <laughs> these these concepts mean and I can ident- yeah. identify it. But when it actually came to um, having a conversation or talking with someone who identified as queer or trans or um uh, as LGBTQ plus, I had difficulty understanding because all the information I had access to was just one dimensional. It was just the, the literal definition in the sense, not you as a person per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that the, the position that you're taking on is building in those emotional connections. Thank you. It's exciting for me. It feels uh, like a real honor to get a chance to do it and to to make a living this way too. Are there any challenges that come with trying to uh, create an emotional connection in um, having that in an education or like in a curriculum? Yeah, um, I personally find a few things challenging. One is uh, trying to find the balance of not tokenizing or, um, you know, reducing, right? So I I don't want to just use, you know, a quote unquote sob story to get somebody to be like, oh, those poor kids, or, you know, I don't want to engender pity or um, a, a kind of relationship with somebody's story that isn't the way that the person would want that the, the, the story, uh, holder would want. Uh, so, but once a story is on the table, once it's out there, you know, I lose, um, control of how people receive it. Right. And so the prep I get to do is to consider the story, what parts of a story I tell, what is the story, um, how I tell it, how I share it, um, the format, um, and the pace and the context, right, around the story. So the pace of telling it, is it over, you know, uh, 
over the course of a bunch of things people are learning and they learn this story a little bit at a time, or is it like as a punctuation at the beginning or the end or the middle of uh, something they're learning? Um, and then the context, meaning uh, what is the lesson to be learned or what, what part of a course or a curriculum is something a part of it, it, it makes a huge difference um, how that story is taken up. So I get to think about all those things, but um, at some point I lose control of, of the story. So I find that challenging, like how it lands and how I can as much as possible ensure that it lands with integrity, it lands with respect. So that's one, one is hard. Uh, another one would be, you know, the right story to tell. Like I know my stories and I often tell my stories, um, but I don't know the stories I don't know. And so sometimes I don't have like a perfect story for a thing. Um, so not having a perfect story is challenging uh, when I want to tell a story. Um, and then of course, uh, not, uh, allowing myself to forget the diversity of the people who might be receiving the story. You know, it's, mm. it's quite easy for me to forget. And so I start imagining who the audience is, right. Um, especially when I'm planning something like a webinar, um, that might be used by an organization over and over. I don't actually know who the audience will be. I don't know, aside from perhaps they've been hired by the organization or they're volunteering at an organization, but I don't know many other demographic things. I don't know people's social locations. I don't know their personal experiences. So um, to imagine a, a wider audience uh, always is sort of the, the, goal um and not letting my brain like go ahead and narrow it down mm -hmm. yeah because i think um some concepts or definitions might be obvious to someone who has worked with the material before but um to someone who's hearing the terms for the first time they might not necessarily know what they mean and you might need to spend depending on what the audience is for some audiences you might need to expand and elaborate on some of those concepts versus yeah. others you know like they immediately get it like you say queer and trans they get it but yeah. for some audience, it's like, no, this is um, what it means to be queer. This is what it means to yeah. be trans. Um, so spending that time considering your audience is very key. And I agree. It's a, it's a challenging aspect, especially if um, the material that you produce is going to be used over and over again. And you don't mm -hmm. have control over who is like the intended audience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that it, is sometimes challenging to create the stories or find the stories, um, especially stories that aren't your own. Um, do you like work with other folks in um, curating the stories or the stories that you make up? Um, no, I, I uh, draw stories from what I have heard already, what have been shared with me, what I've lived. Um, so I, uh, I don't think I've ever uh, gone out and s sought out a story. So in some ways, I guess um, I'm just, I'm thinking like stories happen uh, to me, meaning like they arrive uh, in my life 
um, either from a telling or from it happening. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't draw on things that are not already here. Um, I guess I, I partly believe that, um, like it's whatever I know currently is what I'm meant to know currently. And then things that I will come to learn later is for later. So I haven't, um, you know, collaborated with anyone on, you know, creating stories um, or uh, asked people specifically for uh, stories about certain things. I'm just uh, letting them sort of come to me when the time is right. When the inspiration strikes. <laughs> yeah. You know, or like when it's, it's kind of like um, the belief that some people have about, you know, things happen for a reason or that they believe in fate. You know, I kind of believe in fate, in other words, uh, in terms of uh, what stories I know and don't know and what I live and what I don't live. Um, one story that you might know and kind of switching gears here a little bit, um, I know that some of your work focuses on consent. Um, mm. So for anyone who is listening who doesn't necessarily um, know what consent or consent culture is, um, can you speak more to, as to what consent culture is and why it might be important? Yeah, one of my favorite um, definitions of consent culture actually just comes from um, Urban Dictionary, um, the website. You love Urban Dictionary. <laughs> I do love Urban Dictionary. Um, and uh, so it, it starts off, it's two parts. It starts off by saying that consent is, you know, consent culture particularly is assuming that every person um, knows what's best for them and their needs and wants in a, a, any particular moment. And so it believes in things like bodily autonomy. It believes that, um, you know, what you say is true for you. So that's one piece of it. And often, you know, consent culture is brought up um, in a sexual or romantic or erotic or intimate context. So that I think that part of consent culture is uh, best known or most well known. Um, but Urban Dictionary goes on to say that consent culture is actually um, uh, connected to social world as well. It's not just a sexual uh, world thing, which means if you're not a sexual person, which means you're not currently a sexual person, um, that it still applies. Um, and that social um, consent culture means the same, um, that bodily autonomy is um, most powerful and that person personal agency is um, a priority. So uh, that means, you know, it's, it's not funny to drag you on the dance floor if you don't want to dance and, but I'm your friend and I want you to dance. Mm -hmm. Um, that means if I'm going to show a photo of you that I have on my phone, um, you know, put it on some kind of social media, public facing, um, uh, forum that I need your permission. I need your consent. Um, it means if I'm really digging, you know, your, what you're wearing or how you look or how your body is, and I want to, in appreciation, touch it, uh, I need to ask, right? So social, uh, socially consent culture, um, manifests in all those ways. So consent culture essentially is allowing, um, a slightly different version of what many of us have gotten used to, which is, 
that certain things are assumed okay, even though we don't like it, right? So uh, a friend that we haven't seen in a long time and they're walking towards us and they reach out their arms, the assumption is, well, I have to hug you because otherwise um, I'd be rude. So consent culture is actually saying there's um, other ways to relate to each other um, outside of, oh, I feel guilty, I feel bad, therefore I have to do something. Or like everyone's doing it, so I have to do something. Or if you think that's best for me, then I have to do it. Yeah, there definitely is an element of pressure when it comes to participating in social acts. Like mm -hmm. I definitely have been on the receiving end where I am not particularly fond of hugs. So I know that there are some folks that like immediately when they're like, hi, Hannah, they like have their arms wide open and then they come in for a hug. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. uh, gingerly patting you on the back, but this yeah. is really uncomfortable and I need my space. Um, yeah. So I am definitely the type of person that I am not vocal in the moment when it comes to expressing what my boundaries are. Um, mm -hmm. So for anyone who has a, cha uh, a challenge with like vocalizing their thoughts or saying no in those situations, do you have any suggestions for those folks? Yeah, um, a couple. One is to practice. Um, practice with smaller um, vocalizings. So maybe not your, you know, super... Uh, excited friend who is super sensitive and if you were like oh it's so good to see you but I'm really not into hugs I've never told you this but let me tell you now um, and if your friend is gonna like be super fragile and you know be deeply hurt by that that's not good practice ground uh, for you um, that's that's difficult um, practice ground. So practice it with, you know, somebody, um, that, you know, is more resilient, practice it with somebody, um, who isn't, you know, somebody you haven't seen in three years, um, uh, practice it with, um, somebody uh, in anticipation, right. Before you see the person, uh, as you're about to see the person and you're like texting each other, like, yeah, I'm around the corner, almost there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving you the best high five ever PS no hugs today. I'll tell you more, you know, like, um, preemptively doing it because once the invitation has been extended and the person's arms are coming at you, that is, <laughs> that, that is a higher, um, uh, ramp to go uh, on. Yeah. You know, it's that, that is a bigger challenge, uh, in setting boundaries. Um, so that's one thought. Um, and then connected to that thought would be like also setting boundaries in other ways, right? So, um, people who insist that you have an extra slice of cake and they do it out of goodness and, and you really don't want to in that moment, just say, I know you really want me to have an, another slice, but I cannot. And if I do, I will get extremely irritated and you don't want that. Um, so whatever might work for you, something that that's aligned with your, you know, sense of humor, with your way of being, um, your own script, in other words, your own way of setting boundaries. It does not have to sound like the way I would set a boundary, it does not have to sound like anyone else setting a boundary. So that's uh, one idea. And then the other idea is really about normalizing that feeling of awkwardness. Um, so often I get asked, um, 
how do I do this without hurting somebody's feelings? How do I, you know, break up with my longtime partner, um, but not hurt their feelings? Mm-hmm. Um, or how do I, um, you know, say no to all these people who want me on their committees, uh, but um, not have them be mad at me? Um, the truth is you, you can't, you don't know. Um, and it may be a situation where they're going to be mad at you. So you get to actually choose uh, between them being mad at you or you setting a boundary. Uh, no, uh, or you not setting a boundary. So in those cases, if we're waiting for that moment when setting a boundary means no bad things happen, no hard things happen, no one is feeling sorry for themselves, no one is angry, no one is disappointed, then uh, we'll never get there. We'll never get to a point where uh, everyone is just happy, happy. Um, Which means I have to tolerate that feeling. I just have to tolerate the feeling I get when you're disappointed with me. I can't wait until you're not disappointed to set my boundary. And so that's the second idea, which is normalizing what I can tolerate to, to increase my tolerance for what I don't like, which is witnessing somebody being upset, witnessing somebody looking at me like, Oh, you're not nice. You're not as nice as I was hoping you would be. Um, listening to somebody who, um, is hurt, um, and, and knowing that maybe now they don't like me as much, um, as before, um, they would, they don't like me as much now as when I would compromise my boundaries. So to really know that, that, that is uh, part of the work that if you're somebody who tends to, uh, say yes, when you want to say no, um, that part of the work is, uh, about tolerance It's not just the skill in saying no. Yeah, it, it's much easier saying yes and uh, going along with whatever the situation requires of you. Um, yeah. And I know, and from my personal experience, it's I say yes because I don't like rejection and I don't like making people mm-hmm. upset. And that's just a shortcoming on me that I don't have as much tolerance or resiliency that I should have. Um, but building resiliency can be quite challenging and difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So do you have any like tips or strategies on how to build resiliency? Um, I think the two, the same two ideas um, apply in this case. One is when you are uncomfortable, when you're awkward and you're like, Oh, I can't do this. I can't say no. You know, my aunt is so pushy. I've never said no before. She's going to think something's up. She'll feel so hurt. I don't want, I don't like rejecting people. Just expect it. When the guilt comes, expect it, right? So, so that when it actually comes, you'll know it's not a sign that something's wrong. It's a sign that you've set a boundary actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, you have an, um, you have a goal per- for yourself um, to set certain kinds of boundaries. So know that you're actually closer to that goal when you feel awkward, when you feel nervous, when you feel um, unsure, is this the right thing to do, right? Don't expect that when you do the thing you want to do, it'll feel just amazing. That's not 
what's going to happen yet? First thing that happens is the habitual uh, feeling first. So that's one, expectations. And then two is to practice. That's the only way to, to build resilience. You can't actually um, have that skill of setting boundaries um, without practicing and failing sometimes and succeeding sometimes and making a mess of it sometimes. Um, but, you know, so often people who are not um, that comfortable setting certain kinds of boundaries, when they do, um, immediately there's like a flood of regret. Um, and then sometimes people will actually then backtrack on the boundary they set and me maybe even backtrack further so that they compromise more than they would have if they had not set the boundary in the first place, because now they're not just feeling bad about, uh, wanting to set a boundary. They're feeling bad also about having set one. Mm -hmm. So then they might backtrack and say, actually, yes, I, I didn't want to join your committee. Uh, and then I've said no. And now I feel so bad that I'm going to not only join your committee, I will be your chair. You know, I would take on more work. And so in that moment, catch yourself. I think I'm doing that thing. I'm noticing it. This makes sense. Uh, it's not ridiculous that I would have this recoil effect. Um, and that my commitment to myself is not to write you back and email and say, I will be your chair. And actually I will join your committee. My commitment to myself is to call a different friend and say, I just said no to something and I feel terrible. And what I need is your help. Uh, and remind me that this is what I want. This is, this is the practice that I need to do, right? Help me through it. So, um, those are, uh, the same two ideas applied to creating resilience. Yeah, definitely having a support system around you that you have friends or peers that you can turn to and have those um, conversations where you can just vent your frustrations or your mm -hmm. um, uncomfortableness and have your emotions validated in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so exactly. And also having that support system is like it, it might be a funny conversation to have a friend be like, hey, can you just practice saying no to me so I can build my resiliency and learn how to accept no's to my face, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have one friend in mind that I've asked them just to be the harshest critic ever so I can learn how to accept criticism. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely practice. And hey, it will be a funny phone call with a friend. Be like, hey, can you just take on this role? I really need your support right now. <laughs> yeah. And so if what you want to practice is being rejected or having somebody set a boundary on you versus you're the one who's saying, here's a boundary. Um, I also find, um, once you've asked your friend or, you know, life also presents many opportunities for feeling rejected, feeling sidelined, feeling left out and so forth. Um, the, the what I find uh, helpful is to have a script, um, have a line that you'll say when your brain is reeling in insecurity, reeling in hurt and shame, and you don't know how to be grounded yet, um, repeat the line that you've decided, right? So, um, say, uh, you know, if, if somebody is rejecting you for, let's say you go up to somebody and say, can I have your phone number? Or can I take you out sometime? I think you're amazing. Um, and they're like, uh, no. Then maybe the script is, um, thanks so much. Uh, I'm glad I asked. Um, have a great day. 
Um, and a, a really great script that I heard from a friend of mine who is a teacher. Um, and, um, you know, she was doing a, a parent teacher interview, uh, one time with one of her students' parents. Um, and the parent hit on her. Mm-hmm. The parents said, uh, to her, um, uh, that he, he wanted to take her out sometime. Um, and, you know, she was really uncomfortable and he noticing that she was like shifting and didn't know what to say. She hadn't really actually said no yet, but she was like looking for her words. Um, the parents said, Oh, I see I've made you feel uncomfortable. I really didn't mean to. And I'm sorry. Let me, let me, you know, like rescind that request. Thanks for considering. So then, you know, like I see I've made you feel uncomfortable is such a great line to, to describe what's happening in this moment and and not to uh, make excuses for it and not to have to beat yourself up for it either. Just say what it is and then say what you're going to do, which is like, we're good. So yeah, a script I find helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that um, your work also integrates emotional intelligence. So building in those emotions in your response um, can be helpful for both the party that's being spoken to and the party that's actually saying, uh, that line. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And, you know, in essence, emotional intelligence is to me, um, all of that practice, emotional intelligence is being able to feel, uh, awkward without running away from it, without having to replace it with a feeling that's not awkward. Um, emotional intelligence is being able to, um, consider and allow two things to coexist, which is, um, like in this case, I am a kind person and I set my boundaries, right? Don't let that moment of setting boundaries make, um, make, make you think, oh, this means I'm really mean. I'm a nasty person. Um, because I, I hurt people's feelings to really be able to let those things coexist, that I can be kind and set a boundary, that I can uh, be clear and honest and hear this person out. I can be, uh, I can find you amazing and want to um, maybe go on a date with you and hear that you don't want to go on a date with me. It doesn't change how I feel about you. And that doesn't bring shame upon me just because I desire you in a way you don't desire me. Is, does it suck? It does suck. Mm-hmm. Is it disappointing? Absolutely. Um, do I wish it was different? Yes, I do. Um, but um, those things can all coexist. So emotional intelligence um, actually it, it, it is connected to all of those moments, even if I'm not saying what I'm feeling at a time that I'm not, you know, having a a conversation about feelings, I'm using my emotional intelligence, uh, just to even be present in that moment. In the example that you brought up, um, you had mentioned that the parent was able to identify that the teacher was uncomfortable based on Mm -hmm. their, their gestures and the way that they're presenting their body language. And I know oftentimes folks, um, take, consent culture to be like, oh, but they said yes, or they said no, Mm. but they often rely on the verbal cues. Um, Mm -hmm. How can someone to better um, participate in consent culture, um, how can they better identify some of those like non-verbal cues? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is um, some of us are, are not 
um, good at or not able to identify uh, more subtle cues, right? Um, uh, many folks who are neurodivergent, for example, it's not um, it's not something that that comes easily. And so if that's the case for you, uh, if that's the case for anyone, uh, it's actually useful for that person to say, by the way, I don't read um, subtle social cues well. It might be actually very helpful to preempt that uh, in my social interactions, uh, just as a reminder, right? Um, similar to my dad, for example, he doesn't hear out of one of his ears. Um, and so it, and he often finds that people uh, will go up to him on that side where he doesn't, uh, he's not hearing, um, and start whispering or talking to him on that side. And what he does is um, say, Ashley, I don't hear on this side. Can you come over here or talk louder so that this ear can pick it up? Um, so it's a very similar sort of notification, um, letting somebody know. I don't really pick up um, subtle social cues. It would be really helpful for me if you tell me uh, directly and clearly how you're feeling and what your intentions might be around this project or whatever. Um, so making that also and normalizing that kind of conversation, I think can be really helpful. Uh, otherwise, if you're somebody who wants to be better at reading um, social cues, there are a number of um, actually like training programs out there. Um, and if you just Google, you know, uh, increasing uh, uh, ability to read social cues, um, asking people that you know, um, what did you just see uh, from that person, right? Allowing um, them to tell you their experience and then you comparing your own experience. If you have um, friends that you can work with um, on something like this um, to actually say, what would you do if you were like wanting to say no to something? Let's say I said, you know, come over for a party, but you didn't want to hurt my feelings, but you don't want to come. Like, what would you actually do? And start noticing and, and piecing it together, not as a package, but compartmentalizing them. So start noticing. Okay. So people don't say no, but they will say things like, um, let me see. So they hesitate and they defer the decision. They might say things like, yeah, maybe. So they're giving like not yes, not no answers. Uh, they might change the topic. They might say, oh, interesting. You should bring up a party. You know, who's having a party? So-and-so. Um, so changing topics. Um, and then also, so that's in terms of verbal cues, um, you can do the same for facial cues, hand cues, how close somebody is. Do they turn their body away from you, turn their body towards you? Um, in terms of smiles, um, do they smile excessively a lot suddenly? Um, all those things are, are great cues. And for anyone who is listening that might not be familiar, um, can you just quickly define uh, what it means to be neurodivergent? Um I may not do a very good job, but for my understanding uh, of neural divergence is um, having ways of processing information, uh, processing um, emotion, processing ideas uh, in ways that are not as uh, common. Uh, there are certain ways that um, a smaller population of people process uh, all those things that is not typical. 
Um, and we were calling typical just by majority. So many folks who, for example, uh, who are on the autism spectrum disorder um, would uh, identify uh, themselves as being neurodivergent. Um, so it, it also has to do with uh, what we're calling the majority. The Most people process things a certain way and uh, some people don't process it quite the same way. And so it might be about information, but it might also be about exactly what we're talking about, like social cues, um, subtle little things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the shift online, like I only recently found out about neurodivergency or ND um, through social media, because with the shift online, a lot of conversations mm-hmm. have taken a text format and it's hard to express those subtlety of communication um, through just like a sentence. So um whenever like I see um, posts on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook that have like the forward slash S or like forward slash JK to like denote this sentence is meant to be sarcastic or this sentence is meant to be taken as a joke. Um, So if you come across any of those kind of posts on social media uh, for any of our listeners, those posts are catering towards anyone who um, does identify as uh, ND and makes it a little bit easier for them to understand what exactly is happening in this conversation. Mm Yeah. So that's something like I recently found out and it's because of the, the mm. pandemic that I was wondering why there suddenly was um, uh, an increase in people ending their sentences with like the forward slash S or forward slash JK. And I was like, what does this mean? Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's one way that we can uh, be a little bit more explicit or a way that we can mm-hmm. express our subtleties in an online format, especially if you are um engaging in any kind of relationship that happens through an online medium. So whether it's texting your friend, um, messaging a long-term mm-hmm. partner that's not necessarily in front of you, mm-hmm. um, or a long-distance partner. That's great. Um, yeah, so those are some of those ways that we can build in um, those communication cues, um, even in a texting medium. Yeah. Um, so I know that you... Um, are working on um, curriculum and education. Um, so do you feel that there are any gaps or anything that's lacking from um, our current education system regarding consent culture? If there's something that you'd like um, schools or the curriculum to teach differently about how to uh, have a conversation regarding consent culture? I think there is probably a lot missing. It's- um, and I, I think some of that has to just with uh, has to do with just convention like it's not been the thing we do to do this so uh consent for example even in the ontario curriculum is relatively new and so uh as with most things the the beginning of the thing is a bit of a trial and error and so i think currently consent is often taught didactically right um, this is what it is. This is how it is. This is what you say. This is what you don't say. This is what you're entitled to. And this is what you're not entitled to. Um, and so I'm looking forward to how it will evolve actually, um, how, you know, uh, and I'm already seeing some, uh, and more and more experiential ways of letting people to uh, learn how to tune in to their, um, their comforts, discomforts, to really uh, start to discern between what is uncomfortable and what is unsafe. That, you know, I'm seeing that 
sometimes once we've picked up the the concept of consent, then everything that uh, we don't like um, or everything that we find uncomfortable, um, we might say that's unsafe. Um, and so that that actually requires a better discernment, um, and that it would be actually doing a disservice um, to to use these kinds of concepts, kind of. Um, overly generally other things that i think are missing um of course uh pretty classically is that examples tend to be uh in a heterosexual setting examples tend to be um assuming that people are really clear about um sexual experience that I, I know what I want and I know what I don't want. And therefore, if you ask me pointedly what I want, then I will tell you those three things that I want. The truth is, I think most people uh, don't work that way most of the time. Um, and that sexual experience, kind of like having a conversation, um, is not, you know, I, I don't know how our conversation is going to go or how I'm going to feel about it um, until we start having it until I start to feel like, how is it going? Where is it going? And what does it feel like to relate to you in this moment? Um, and so sexuality and sexual experience um, is like that. And so I can't really know uh, what I want until it's happening, um, which is why ongoing communications around consent needs to be emphasized versus a permission giving uh, form of consent uh, seeking and consent giving. Um, another thing that's, I think, uh, missing or, uh, needs to change and will eventually change is that, you know, that, that we need to stop talking about sexual experience as, um, discrete series of activities that we do that, um, it's not like, do you consent to have, you know, this kind of sex with me? Um, yes, I do. No, I do not. Um, that sexual activities become compartmentalized actually um, in a way that's very reductive, in a way that has to do with, you know, uh, porn and uh, nothing wrong with porn, but porn is not uh, usually an accurate depiction of what uh, people are like sexually together. And so, but porn, especially, you know, if it's online, uh, if it has keywords connected to it, becomes compartmentalized. It becomes discrete activities and they're categorized by the activity that's happening in the porn. Um, and so that's only one way to talk about sex. And uh, if people are having sexual experience together, it doesn't come with, you know, hashtags and, you know, keywords and so forth. Uh, it Ideally, for me, if I could tell people what to do, I would say have more of a conversation and less mm -hmm. of a menu of like, I'll order like a B and then, a, you know, an S and then, you know, end with a T. Um, that's, that's not actually paying attention to the person in front of you, the person's or person in front of you. Um, that's not actually relating. That's um, a bunch of doing.
So we have looked at education um, or educating more in the form of like school and secondary school. Um, but I know that education can happen at a young age among families, a relationship between parents and children or um, guardian and children or guardians and children. Um, how do you feel like, is there a role that parents also play in um, educating their children about consent culture? Absolutely. Um... Huge, huge role. Um, and I think everyone actually has a role to play in each other's um, practice of uh, consent and manifestation of a greater consent culture. So it, especially in terms of, you know, a parent or a guardian or a grown up in the life of somebody young, um, having the conversation is one way of doing it, you know, actually sitting down and say, do you understand consent? But, you know, as a parent myself, uh, I have a very young child. Um, I see it all the time that, um, that these moments come up all the time where, uh, I'm, I'm asked to set boundaries, uh, with my child. Um, and I can explain those boundaries in so many different ways, right? So I can say it's too early in the morning, um, don't, you know, bang on the wall. We have neighbors and we don't want to wake them. That's one way of, you know, instilling a kind of empathy, a kind of, um, a reason to choose what you're doing based on somebody else's experience, um, versus uh, don't bang on the wall. It's bad. It's rude. It's loud. That's another reason. Um, so I think, Aside from, you know, sit your kid down and talk to them about consent culture, that's one way, but really it happens um, all the time. Um, uh, all the skills involved uh, in making consent culture real are things that are happening all the time. Um, and, um, and, you know, ultimately consent is... Uh, I, I like to say a very low bar. It's like, it's like having a ticket into an event, but it's not the event itself. Um, so I don't wish, um, I wouldn't wish my child to only have consensual, um, interactions with others. Like I, I, I would like to set a higher bar than that consensual. Yes. And, how do you actually uh, have a wonderful time with somebody? How do you actually really connect to another person? How do you actually care for another person? All those are beyond uh, consent um, because you can be consensual and not do any of those things. Um, so I think parents um, and guardians and, and grownups have that role to play too. Don't ask only um, that young people that we each other, uh, pass a low bar, you know, set the bar higher, um, make sure that, um, you know, we, we, we think about other people, uh, make it matter how somebody feels, um, which is not to say only do things that other people want you to do, right? It's like the balance. And so much of that is in modeling, right? So if as a parent, I, um, you know, have my neighbor's keys because, you know, just in case they want to text me, you know, to check their stove or something, then I don't, you know, go in, uh, to their house without their consent, even though I have their keys and that's that I can model that. 
but it doesn't really work if I tell my child, uh, you must always uh, practice consent and then do a whole bunch of things that are non-consensual uh, in our lives and just try to get away with it. And if I don't get away with it, then I'm caught and then I fess up. But otherwise I try to get away with it. That's, um, I'm teaching something else than what I think I'm actually teaching. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. Um, and especially the, the fact that for, for your child, um, they're at a young age. So modeling is especially important because they pick up on these behaviors and they unconsciously learn mm-hmm. like they indirectly like pick up these behaviors and this will like show up or manifest later on in their life um because they only really have you as an immediate mm-hmm. role model in their lives and someone that they look up to is to um, dictate that this is right or this is wrong um so being able to actually practice um what you're teaching your child is better or in some ways enforces the verbal that instructions that you've given because you're actually giving like a physical action to um hold truth or hold value to your words Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know another um piece of that uh modeling uh not only like you know do what you do and then know that your kid is learning it but how you connect with uh the child also makes a difference so i think you know uh i will talk to my kid about consent And I will uh, try to help my child like learn about how um, other people's experiences are. And I will also uh, really work on connecting with my child because connection is at the core of great consent. Connection, actually um, tuning in to somebody and how they are versus doing it because the law says so or the rule says so. Um, a really easy way to manifest consent culture is actually real um, connection. And I, I can, you know, point a finger and say, you better connect to every friend you have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're ever sexual with anyone, you better connect with them. Um, or I can. <laughs> teach my kid actually how to connect with somebody by trying to connect um, now. So I think um, especially when we have somebody in our lives every day, um, an ongoing basis versus, you know, like a lesson on consent today, uh, when it's an everyday um, situation, I think um, our influence is, is huge in that way that we can on an everyday basis connect on an everyday basis say, I realize I hurt your feelings. Um, I'm really sorry. How are you? Right. Those are connect, uh, consent skills. Um, and, uh, I can, I can teach it or I can do it and doing it, I think, uh, means a lot in this case. Yeah. It's like the age old phrase that actions mean more than words mm. that you can, kind of throw as much uh, dialogue mm-hmm. and terms at a, at a kid, but they're not going to learn until you actually demonstrate uh, it explicitly mm-hmm. to them. I This might be reiterating past things, so just let me know, but this is another question I have in mind. Um, that we've kind of been taking the perspective of someone who 
is um, setting up their own boundaries and approaching others when they understand that they've made someone uncomfortable. Um, but what about the person on the receiving end, right? Like, let's say I realize I violated someone's boundaries or I um, did something and found out later that I um, went against mm-hmm. their consent. Um, for someone who is in that role, um, like, I don't want to say like, how should they respond, but what kind of strategies or advice would you give to someone when they realize that like, Hey, I unintentionally violated someone's boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually it's a very common experience, um, especially as people are learning more and more about consent that, um, for many of us, um, it's like, wow, now that I have a slightly different idea about consent, looking back, um, I wonder if, if, um, you know, I have violated people's consent. I have, uh, created harm. Um, so it's a very common wondering, especially as somebody is, um, delving deeper into consent. Um, and I would say in that case, um, connection is really important, right? Uh, like I, I, I was saying just now, um, to be able to go back to this person and say, listen, I'm, I've been doing some thinking. Are you open to me talking to you about, um, what happened between us or what, uh, what happened that night or, you know, those 23 years where we're together, um, I have some thoughts that I wanted to share with you and possibly an apology. Um, to ask for permission to enter the conversation, um, to have the conversation, to to be as honest as possible. Um, and also to remember, and the reason why we're even asking a permission uh, to have that conversation is that person is um, can be really powerful in your own healing of having done harm, right? For many people, um, after we've done harm, we know that the person who we did harm to has huge power in being able to let us um, let us go, let us be forgiven, uh, release us from that uh, awful feeling of having done harm. And so while they have that power, at the same time, uh, it can be really hard to do that. They might not want to do that. They may not want to revisit it. They may not want to do that work with you. And so if that's the case, you let that go too. And you have to find your own way about it. Even if it is that I really want to go and talk to you and give you that apology so that I can clear my conscience and so that I can take care of you. um, If the person that you've harmed does not want that, then that takes uh, precedence. But let's say they do, they're open to having that conversation. Um, Then I would say you proceed as you would um, a conversation that you don't know the end to, to really pay attention and be present and say, these are the things I've been thinking about. And, uh, you know, whatever your truth might be, let's say the truth is, uh, I realize, um, what we did was very possibly non-consensual on your part that I, I was coercive or I forced you, or, uh, I might made it impossible for you to actually tell me uh, anything, but yes. Um, to share that and then to listen. What does that make you think about? That person may know something um, they've been dying to tell you. That person may never have even thought of it that way. Whatever might be the case, um, to be present enough to listen, um, even if you're scared. Even if you're scared, they they might say, yeah, it scarred me for life. Um, 
It changed how I relate to all things sexual. Whatever your fears might be, just know them, but also try your best to be present um, so that you can listen. And then you don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go. Um, but that's the way to do it. That's the way to go. Um, versus like, there's a template, make the apology, say the mm -hmm. template, and then you're done. You're absolved. You're done. There, there's no checklist. There's no like, I've said this, check. I've said this, yeah. check. If then statements, there's yeah. none of those in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes certain things can be helpful. You know, um, you know, it might be helpful to say, I'm learning this and this is how I'm going to make sure that I'm not doing this kind of harm again, right? I'm learning it this way. I'm getting help this way. I'm making amends this way. Or I'm, you know, it might be helpful to, to apologize in those ways, to take account, to take accountability in those ways. Um, but you're right. It's not a, it's not a checklist. It's not what we're doing here. Cool. Okay. So I know that we've talked a lot about consent, consent culture and education. Um, so it might be uh, a lot to ask you, but if you were to, um, have like three big takeaways from this conversation that we had that you'd like listeners to um, really focus and kind of um, take home with them. Um, what would be some of your three takeaways? About consent? About consent and or like anything that we've had in this conversation today so far. Um, I think uh, the three biggest takeaways for me um, are, and in my own life, our uh, connection, that um, there's a lot of uh, um, information these days. You know, we, we we're inundated with information and how to be and the right way to be and concepts and terms and, and doing right. Um, and at the same time, that all can be quite empty um, if the purpose to do right is about being right is if the purpose to do right is about um, getting a perfect score as an ally or a perfect score as an activist or a perfect score as a social change maker. Um, and that connection is where is what it falls back onto um, is the foundation and it, and it should always be the foundation. And so what is connection? It's, it's being able to humanize another person uh, see their full humanity, um, to see my own humanity, um, and to allow that uh, space between us, uh, that unnameable, uh, uncontrollable, in many ways, space between. Um, and that, that, that is uh, the, you know, consent skill number one. Um, another takeaway for me, I think, um, is that consent is a low bar. It's, um, it's the basic requirement um, so that how each person in an interaction uh, feels is uh, important, that, uh, that we're all valued, that we matter. Um, and if we're talking about friendship, if we're talking about um, sexual experience, that consent is just the lowest bar. It's where we start. Um, it's not where we end. And so if we're talking about sexual experience, um, after 
thinking about consent and within the boundaries of consent, really con consider like pleasure, really consider meaning, really consider uh, fun and enjoyment and adventure. Uh, same for a friendship. Um, that, that consent is not um, the new and only way um, to be guided. And a third takeaway, I think, um, would be to be kind, to be kind to oneself and to be kind to each other. And that, um, we do make mistakes, um, and, and we do do harm to ourselves and to each other. And so that, that muscle for kindness is really, um, important. And it's a particular time too, in our collective history where kindness is not often seen in the news. Kindness is not seen, uh, in, um, entertainment. Kindness is hardly seen, um, in many places. And so in order to commit and practice, commit to a practice of kindness and to practice it, um, actually requires so much conscious effort. And so kindness is not the same. Uh, and what I mean by kindness is not, you know, let somebody off the hook. Kindness is not, uh, being soft on uh, your principles and kindness is not about being nice and saying only positive things that are accommodating. Kindness is different altogether. Um, kindness is about, um, really, uh, holding each other in a caring way while we hold each other accountable, while we challenge each other, while we challenge ourselves, uh, while we set boundaries. Um, yeah, so I, I, I would, I would say that's also paramount to other things, kindness. And that is the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to connect further with BK, you can check her out on her website at www.fluidexchange.org, exchange spelled with an E-X, or follow her on Twitter at Karen BK Chan, K-A-R-E-N-B-K-C-H-A-N. If you want to stay updated on the podcast and be notified as to when we release our next episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at OpenYTO. As well, if you enjoyed today's music, be sure to follow Sophia Fly over at DJ Sophia Fly. That's DJ S O F I A F L Y. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rate us. But other than that, we will see you in the next episode. Stay tuned and peace.